anxiety, nervousness, restlessness. Commercials talk about them. Doctors prescribe medicine for it. Counselors make a living off of it. That harassing, wearying, weighing you down load of cares. One thing we all have in common to one degree or another is that you and I tend to worry about those things that are most precious to us. Friends, what is it that you tend to worry the most about in your life? If your physical health means a lot to you, you'll tend to research a lot of concerning symptoms you might be having and begin to worry about it. You begin to notice that all the symptoms seem to match up with this serious diagnosis that you heard about from a friend or family member. Or maybe you've self-diagnosed your problem, perhaps through a frantic and extensive research on WebMD, also known as Dr. Google. If starting a family means a lot to you, you may tend to daydream a lot about wanting a family, longing for a spouse, and having children of your own. But with each passing month and year that those desires don't come to pass, you find yourself anxiously dreading another wedding to go to alone. Maybe even secretly envying others who hear that they're having a baby. And secretly, you don't want to go to that baby shower. You want to be happy for them, but the absence of having a family of your own in your life seems to prevent you from sincerely rejoicing with others in their life. And if you're married with children, and your children mean a lot to you, you may tend to worry a lot about how your children are doing. For some of us, we worry weighs on us almost all the time about our kids. You may even want to know where they're at at all times. You're a Life360 location-sharing app expert. You're constantly wanting to know how they're doing in their jobs, in their school, how they're developing in their social skills. But you're also very concerned about how they're doing spiritually. It's not uncommon for many parents who love Jesus to be rightly concerned about their children's spiritual welfare, even when they're young kids. And as many of you know who are empty nesters today, you're still concerned about your children's spiritual welfare even into their adult years. Uh, the Presbyterian pastor and theologian William Plummer once said this about the paradox experience of having children. He says this, Children are to us what God makes them, comforts or crosses. Sounds a lot like Proverbs 10, verse 1, right? A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Children of all ages can bring a lot of joy, but also brooding anxiety into the hearts of their children. I wonder how many parents today could identify with this paradox experience with your children. If your job or career or financial stability means a lot to you, you'll tend to worry about the finances, protecting your job, storing away money, being territorial in your certain income or role at work. Angst seems to come into your heart when someone new shows up who might be better than you, who might be there to replace you. 
And if your local church means a lot to you, you may tend to worry about the finances of the church, the spiritual condition of its members. Perhaps you may think somehow the church's future is solely dependent on your contribution to it. You find yourself thinking, if it's going to be, it's all up to me. Friends, what is it for you? Randy Alcorn says, worry is a killjoy. What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that raises your blood pressure? What is it that seems to be the root issue for your anxiety and mine? What seems to be that nagging causation that leaves us feeling restless in the present and anxious about our future? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 298. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is found in a collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascents. You can see that in the heading there above verse 1. These 15 psalms, which stretch from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, it could also be called the pilgrim psalms because they center around the pilgrimage God's people made to those well-known feasts of Israel. Those feasts could have included, of course, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. You could read more about these feasts and what they did in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16. They are most likely centered around the songs the people of Israel would sing and encourage one another with as they made the long trek together, as they journeyed together as one big family to the house of God. The author of this psalm is Solomon. Though Solomon is given authorship of other wisdom books like Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, there's only two psalms in the entire 150 Psalter attributed to Solomon. That's Psalm 72 and right here in Psalm 127. Some of you already know Solomon was the third king in Israel's history. After Saul came David, after David came Solomon. Solomon would be the son David would have with Bathsheba. We read in 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 to 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Uh, the public kingship name David gave to his son was Solomon. His name literally means peace or peacefulness. Uh, the personal name that God gave uh, Solomon through the prophet Nathan uh, would be called Jedidiah, which means beloved or loved by Yahweh. To its original author, Solomon and his audience, the psalm would have initially been understood as a psalm of praise and confidence in the Lord, as the Lord would bless, love, and care for his people through the king he put over his people. For context of Psalm 127, that king was Solomon, and his covenant people was Israel. That's probably why in verse 2, if you want to look down briefly, Solomon uses a word that closely resembles his own personal name. Notice what it says, for he gives 
his beloved sleep. That word beloved there, in its root word in the Hebrew language, is related to Solomon's personal name for the Lord, Jedidiah, or beloved of Yahweh. Again, that word beloved here could simply be referring to Solomon. So this psalm in many ways is coming to Solomon and from Solomon. But it could easily be applied to all of God's people. All of God's children who were beloved by Yahweh. The scriptures teach us that Israel was that unique nation Solomon reigned over. Where they were blessed by Solomon's amazing God-given wisdom. His far and wide reach and rule. His fame that extended even beyond the borders of Israel, his exorbitant amount of blessings from God, all for the purpose of enhancing the worship, enhancing the witness as they would build the temple together. Uh, this time period is probably around 1 Kings 3 to 1 Kings 10. And, and some have even called this is Israel's golden era when God's blessing in many ways was poured out on Israel. Uh, happiness, security, Peace and success. For a brief time under Solomon's rule, it was the best of times. But with all that background in mind, Psalm 127 is used to instruct the people of God about their joy and rest as they would remember God's faithfulness to them and over them. But friends, Psalm 127 is relevant for us this morning. As God's people, we are called to have utter dependence on the Lord for every single thing in our life. Let's look together now at Psalm 127. Please follow with me. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. One of the most humbling lessons in life that you and I will learn is that the older we get, the more we realize how little control we have. Everyone over 40 goes. The older you and I get, the more we realize how little control we have over things like people, projects, plans, and certain outcomes from decisions that are made. Those decisions could be decisions we made, and they could be the outcomes of decisions that other people have made. And the more you experience failed plans in your life, at least the failed plans and predictions of how we perceive things should have gone, the more we come to grips with the fact that we don't have everything figured out. We're not as smart and sharp and wise and all-knowing as we thought we were. 
we come to realize that people can predict the future, but we cannot promise what will happen in the future. Only God can do that. As John Piper says, quote, God's promises are not mere predictions of what fate may bring about. They are statements of what he himself intends to do. And in this praise and wisdom psalm, Psalm 127, which instructed the people of God in their annual pilgrimage to this famous and festive feast, it highlights that humbling truth for us. A humbling truth that we all need to heed. We all need to take that spoon of God's good medicine and put it in our mouth this morning and ask God to help our hearts believe it and love it this morning. So what is that big spoonful, not of sugar and honey, but of wisdom from God in Psalm 127, we need to eat and learn to love. If you're taking notes, here's the main point of the sermon, okay? I'll repeat it a few times. Our lives are in God's sovereign and generous hands and not our own. Our lives are in God's sovereign and generous hands and not our own. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, speaking of the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. Here Solomon highlights three very common everyday human experiences in the life of Israel. And he says that without the Lord's sovereign help and without the Lord's generous blessing, each of these activities in their lives will be fruitless. They will amount to nothingness. He says there multiple times, they will be in vain. First, he mentions in verse 1, the plans and project of building a house. Now, the word house here could literally mean a dwelling place. Four walls, a roof, and a picket fence. It could be a physical house that real people lived in. But it could also refer to the actual family or family lineage itself. Speaking of children, grandchildren, and their children's children, descendants, future offspring. But it can also speak of a kingdom dynasty. As much as we uh, understand 2 Samuel 7 rightly, we see that David desired to see a house, a place, a dwelling place built for God. Within that same chapter, God would make a promise to build David and his house, referring to David's future descendants. And from David's future descendants, God would appoint a king that would reign forever and ever on his throne. So if you've got your Bibles with you, hold your spot in Psalm 127. I typically don't ask you to flip in pages in your Bible unless it's very important. So this is one of those moments. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I didn't get the page number for the Pew Bibles, so if someone has that, you can yell it out loud. But otherwise, 2 Samuel 7. This is one of the most key texts in your Old Testament to rightly understand messianic fulfillment. 2 Samuel 7. 
David's been reigning for king for some time. He's won many victories. He's going to win even more. He wants to build Yahweh, the Lord, a dwelling place, a temple. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to give him the answer to his request. I want you to look down with me in 2 Samuel 7 and see this wordplay of multiple usages of the word house. 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 16. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So turn back to Psalm 127. Of course, Solomon was a son, as we've already said, Jedidiah, Solomon, born from David, who would eventually reign as king. He was the next one in line. Therefore, when Solomon took the throne, that was a partial fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He raised up a son who would build Yahweh a house. However, if you keep reading your Bibles carefully, especially into the Kings and Chronicles, Solomon would not reign forever. Solomon would die. In fact, before Solomon would die, we read these awful words in 1 Kings 11 that the kingdom was divided and torn from him because of his faithlessness and his heart turned away from the Lord. That means the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 would include a descendant of David who would reign on God's throne forever would still await an appointed time. Another son, another king that David says in Psalm 110, he calls my Lord. The one the Gospel of Matthew says would be born of a virgin. One who would usher in the kingdom of God, the house of God on earth in himself. And that is Jesus Christ. Nonetheless, the point here about the building of the house is utterly clear. Whether it's building a new home in Fort Smith or Barling, trying to start a family in the coming years, seeing a U.S. government, business, church, or kingship rise to power with success, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Then he continues on, verse 1. 
the plans and project of securing a city. Back during the day of Israel's time, military personnel would be put on night watch to watch over the city, watch over the borders of enemies trying to come in to invade the people. The role of a watchman and his staying awake at night, uh, he had to be attentive. He had to be alert. He had to be brave. He had to be on spot to fight against falling asleep on the job. In other words, he had to stay on high alert all the time in order to watch over the city and warn the people. The sight and protection would be necessary for Israel if they were going to be safe. As they made that dangerous trek through some of the peoples uh, that are surrounded Israel, who Psalm 120, the first psalm of the Song of Ascents, had some of God's enemies dwelling there. So they had to pass through enemy territory, places and people that were very dangerous to get to the city for the feast. For us today, our watchmen protecting us could be cybersecurity, could be border patrol in the U.S., police officers in our community, the CIA, the FBI, all the way down to you and I locking our doors each night. And for some Arkansan context, what you decide to pack with as you walk around the town. Whatever our form of feeling secure is, whether that's parents watching over their children, whether that's a husband watching over and protecting his wife, whether that's a group of pastors or pastor watching over and caring for his church, whatever form of protection and security that might be used in national, local, and personal ways. Friends, Solomon says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Then, thirdly, he mentions in verse 2, the plans and pursuit of eating bread. Basically, doing what you got to do to eat and survive. As Proverbs 16, 26 says, a worker's appetite works for him, his mouth urges him on. Did you notice there in verse 2 of Psalm 127, this rising up early, this going to bed late, it emphasizes from sun up to sundown to secure what you need to live. This is most likely an allusion to a farmer, someone working tirelessly with their hands all day. But in reality, this could speak of anyone. Stay-at-home moms, uh, doctors and nurses working through the night, uh, retirees caring for their families. And here, this reality of building up the house, watching over the city, really whatever responsibilities and roles God gave his people, they were giving themselves to work all day and all night. And yet within these three enterprises, construction, protection, and provision. You know what Solomon says in all his wisdom to the people of God? He said, unless the Lord blesses those efforts, unless the Lord is in those efforts, unless the Lord is over those efforts, they will fail. They will fall face down, face plant in utter futility. In other words, Solomon says, if God is in it, God is for it, and God is with you, Israel would be okay. Israel would be strong and secure. Israel would be safe and secure. 
strong and mighty, they would have all their needs met if they trusted in Him. That's why in verses 1 and 2 we see this repeated phrase, in vain. Did you catch that? It's not by accident. The word literally means emptiness, vanity, falsehood, uselessness. One translator put it this way, if it is not Yahweh who is building the house, its builders have toiled for nothing. If it is not Yahweh who is keeping a city, its keepers have stayed awake for nothing. You gain nothing, you who are getting up early, delaying to rest, eating the bread of pains. The idea here is wasted effort, pointless energy exerted, fruitless labors that amounted to nothing. Worry that led you nowhere. At least nowhere good. It's like watching a kid play at the beach attempting to build an elaborate sandcastle. He's looked at pictures of the beach and how to build a sandcastle all year long. And then when the moment came to building this masterpiece of sand in his eyes, he hits a disappointing brick wall. In a matter of minutes, a gigantic wave knocks over the whole thing in a moment. A huge storm then begins to approach the beach, and his parents say, Johnny, Johnny, it's time to go, and he leaves with no sandcastle to show for it in the end. That's the image here. Tons and tons of human-conceived plans, nights anxious and worried about tomorrow, sweat And tears poured into endless strategies, meetings, daydreaming, effort, energy. And then when you were looking for a desired outcome, it basically amounted to nothing in the end. Instead of a high five, job well done, it was a total face plant into nothingness. Dust in the wind. Vanity. But what is Solomon getting at in verses 1 and 2? Is he saying that we shouldn't have ambitions in life? Is he saying that we should desire to do little in our life? Is he saying we shouldn't care about our families? Is he saying we shouldn't take protection and precautionary guards in our life? Is he saying we shouldn't plan, start projects, have goals, or work hard at something? Is he saying we shouldn't want what is strong and will endure in our life? Well, of course not. The same Solomon who wrote Psalm 127, he also wrote the vast majority of the Proverbs. Proverbs are those axioms, those general truths of what it looks like to fear God and his world. And Solomon commends hard work, diligence, and the goodness of wise planning in our lives. But within those Proverbs, within these inspired nuggets of wisdom, we see something of what we're reading here in Psalm 127. Friends, as human beings, we are image bearers. We image a working and purposeful God in our actions and our attitudes. Laziness and idleness does not give God glory. But God and God alone is ultimately sovereign 
over the successes and outcomes of everything we give ourselves to and plan in our life. I would encourage you to jot down a few of these texts as we see uh, two equally true things in Scripture, our responsibility and God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way. There's your responsibility. But the Lord establishes his steps. Okay, here's another one. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Or Proverbs 21, 30 and 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Friends, what Solomon is conveying is what we here at CCBC must all come to grips with. We must take that spoonful of holy wisdom and eat it, digest it, believe it, and love it sooner rather than later. Brothers and sisters, if we want to live with real joy, not cheap temporal happiness, real peace, not mind over matter positive vibes, real contentment that's not dependent on favorable circumstances, if we want that, no matter the outcome of our decisions or other people's decisions, no matter what circumstances God has ordained for our life, if we want to live not in chronic fear, chronic anxiety, chronic fretting, chronic regret, beloved, we have to come face to face with the Bible's teaching in Psalm 127. Our lives are in God's sovereign and generous hands and not our own. If you really believe that, give a hearty amen. That's better. Friends, do you believe that? Not lip service. Do you love knowing that? Do you cherish and delight that your life and my life are in God's sovereign and generous hands and not ours? Do we really believe, come on church, our families are in God's sovereign and generous hands and not our own? That goes for spouses, children, siblings, and parents. Do you and I truly believe our church is in God's sovereign and generous hands and not our own? Our health is in God's sovereign hands and not our own. Our jobs are in God's sovereign and generous hands and not our own. Oh, beloved, only what God builds will last. Only what God protects will be safe and secure. Only what God provides will be sufficiently enough. And only God and God alone can give us rest, peace, joy for our anxious, weary, and fretful souls. Look what he says there in verse 2. For he gives his beloved sleep. He gives his beloved rest. For some of us, our sleeplessness at night could be the result of having a restless soul throughout the day.
Michael Reeves says, keep your happiness where it can't be hurt, in Christ. For some of us, our sleeplessness and our lack of restful sleep could simply be because of poor time management. We play when we should be working and productive. We waste time worrying about things that are not in our control. And we're always having to play catch up as a result. And what happens? We're always trying to catch up on rest. Matt Smether said, sleep is our night's declaration that we aren't God. Friends, some of us need to hear this again and again. Go to bed. Don't stay up so late doing things that you know lead you to sin or perpetuate your anxiety. It is not unspiritual. It is actually rather spiritual to get to bed, get quality sleep, and get up and give your best to God each day. We all need to hear that. That sleeplessness could be our happiness is not wrapped up in Jesus because we're trying to wrap it up in something else. We can't sleep at night because our souls are restless throughout the day. And for others of us, we're just not using the time well spent that God's given us. Friends, what is it you're trying to build in your life, be productive in your life, manage in your life without consulting God about it? What is it that you are watching over, checking up on, paying tons of your time, money, and energy, and attention to, but it's just leaving you restless all the time? What is it that you're spending countless hours worrying about, fretting about, obsessing about, stressed out about, and never taking a break from it and leaving it in the Lord's hand? Friends, whatever it is, we should realize that our worries should lead us to prayerfulness to God, not prayerlessness. Our worries should lead us to greater dependence upon the Lord, not greater independence from the Lord. Did Paul say in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, I would encourage you, if you haven't studied that in a while, it's a familiar text, stare at it this week. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about, who knows this Bible verse? Say it louder. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, literally in all things. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's applicable to every person in this room. Whether we're stay-at-home moms, managing the household affairs, trying to keep things in order, and waking up to predictable chaos every day. Whether it's a single man or single woman anxiously desiring to get married, like trying online dating, going on blind dates, and hopes to find a spouse. Whether it's members and pastors of a church pouring out hours and hours of counseling, Bible study, sermons, meetings, service teams, prayers, worship gatherings, and planning ministry together. Brothers and sisters, none of these things, not one of them, will be successful. None of these things will be fruitful. None of these things will be productive in the eyes of the Lord unless the Lord is behind it. 
unless the Lord is in it, unless the Lord is for it. Oh, friends, unless the Lord draws, unless the Lord empowers, unless the Lord protects, unless the Lord equips, unless the Lord fills, illuminates, regenerates, grants repentance, grants faith, moves his strong, mighty, extended hand, apart from a death grip dependence on Jesus Christ, none of us can do anything spiritually lasting. What did Jesus say? Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do nothing. What did Paul say to the Corinthians about the growth of the Corinthian church? Remember the first church I passed and Rose said, Brother Blake, you've seen our church, it's kind of small. It's only like 15 people, so we're like a mega church compared to my first church. Brother Blake, you see we're kind of small and beleaguered, hadn't really grown in like 15 years. I don't even know if this guy actually came to church regularly, but he came up for that Q&A. Brother Blake, how are you going to grow our church? I said the same way the Apostle Paul saw the Corinthian church grow. How's that, brother? 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Friends, how did Paul and Apollos view themselves? As humble servants, not prideful know-it-alls. As hardworking farmers, not final judges. As God's fellow workers, not independent mavericks or manipulative control freaks. Paul knew he could preach, he could pray, he could teach, he could stay, but only God could give the growth. They each did their part. But who actually grew the Corinthian church? Who grows this church? It's God and God alone. Only God gives the growth. Friends, every time we share the gospel with someone, if we're doing our best, even if we stumble over every word, if we're trying to have a family devotion, in like 45 seconds was undistracted. If we're aiming to be faithful, leave the fruitfulness to God. Our responsibility is to preach, pray, believe, and apply the one another's to our lives in response to the gospel. But we leave the results to Him. That's what faithful Christians do all around the world. Not fake and phony ones. There's plenty of those. We're not trying to do gimmicks. Try to draw the biggest crowd, keep people entertained, doing whatever just kind of soothes and attracts as many people as possible. No, we want to present the only thing that is truly good news, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what the early church did, right? In Acts 2, we read after they committed themselves to teaching and prayer, sharing and evangelism, it says in Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, the Bible is clear. God ordained the goodness of work. Work is not a result of the fall, but has been frustrated and made difficult and painful by the fall. That's both work in the home and work outside the home. Work that brings home a financial income and work that doesn't. 
That goes for moms and dads, doctors, babysitters, plumbers, and janitors. Regardless if there is a paycheck or anyone notices. Work that is done unto the Lord and in service to bless others is glorifying to the Lord. The creation mandate of Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply, start families, to rule and exercise dominion over all the earth. Adam was then given a literal garden to work, to till, to protect, to do all these hard work. It necessitates human effort. Let go and let God is not biblical. No, it's trust God and get working. That's biblical. But human effort, friends, and human planning is futile without God's enablement, without God's favor, without God's wisdom, and without God's blessing. Friends, planning and working hard is a very wise and prudent thing to do. But check your heart. When you plan, when you work hard, do you look in the mirror and say, wow, the the Lord must be feeling lucky having me on his team. If it is, that's an illusion. You're deluded. I'm deluded. We can't put our confidence in our intelligence. We can't put our confidence in our college degrees, high school diplomas. We can't put our confidence in foresight, organizational skills, education, talents, resume, past experiences, a social network, or our well-thought-out strategies. No, our confidence must be in God's sovereignty and wise purposes and not in ourselves. Our confidence must be in the kind generosity of God as we wait patiently on His answers to our prayers. One author said this, in every undertaking, God is not merely our chief but our soul dependence. Brothers and sisters, we should write our plans in pencil and let God write his plans in pen or in ink or cement. We write them in pencil so that if he says, that's okay, that's nothing compared to what I'm about to do, that way he can just erase it nice and easy, doesn't snap the pencil right in front of us and have to snatch it out of our hand so that he can write a much better plan that's going to last way longer anyway. Why should we do that? Derek Kidner says, only what is from God is truly strong. If we want things to last eternally, we need God's strength and his wisdom to do it. Whatever God promises, he fulfills. Whatever God builds will last. Whatever God protects is safe. Whatever God provides will be enough. As Stonewall Jackson famously said, My religious beliefs teach me to feel as safe in the battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to always be ready whenever it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and all men would be equally brave. Friends, if Jesus' grip on us is our greatest hope, if Jesus is our greatest treasure, God's kingdom really is sought out, number one, as Ricky read earlier from Matthew chapter 6, Friends, we can live with rest, peace, and confidence. It's the Lord driving the car of our life. It's the Lord who's the captain of the ship we're on. It's the Lord who's the commanding officer, knowing where all the booby traps are and all the landmines are. It's the good shepherd who knows how to lead his wandering, dumb, and wayless sheep to green pastures. 
As Burke Parsons says, may our passion for Christ always be greater than our passion for a pleasant or easy life. So if God is the one who builds, God is the one who protects, God is the one who provides, how do we plan, how do we work while trusting in the sovereignty of God rather than relying on our human effort and even sincere intentions? Let me offer three words of advice. Just to be helpful, write them down, I encourage you. Listen to it later if you don't have a pen. How do we do that? Number one, submit all your plans to God with an open hand. Submit all your plans to God with two open hands. Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Well, what about James 4? How many of us living in the West with more money than Christians have ever had in human history. We can be very presumptuous thinking we can plan out our lives 5, 10, 15, 20 years ahead of time, can't we? But what did James say in James 4, 13 to 16? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend the year there and trade and make a profit. Did you do not know what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What does that look like practically? Here's a suggestive way to pray. Lord, thank you for this day that you've made and for giving me life. I'm going to make my request with open hands. If you want me to do or have something, my hands are open. If you don't want to bless, give, or grant me that something, my hands are still open so that you won't have to pry them open from me if you say no. Submit all your plans to God with two open hands. Two, second word of advice. We should consult God's word for wisdom and guidance. We should consult God's word for wisdom and guidance. Friends, we should regularly search the scriptures to discern whether or not our plans line up with God's priorities and his principles. That's why it's so important to regularly gather with God's people each Lord's Day. We need to be washed and bathed and lathered in God's word from start to finish. Look at the liturgy of our service. That's not me being bored and just wanting to add random things to it. We want our Bibles, our, our services filled with the Bible, bleeding out the Bible, sweating the Bible, so that when people walk away, people go, man, my head hurts. Yes, I want to give you a Bible migraine because I know the Lord will take the seed of his word and plant it deep in your heart and bear fruit long, long after I'm dead and gone or in your children or grandchildren's lives. That's why it's a blessing when members of the church are like bazooka and machine gunning scriptures to each other. Articles, podcasts, sharing with what God's teaching them through his word, Bible studies, gatherings, in the hallway, through text messages. Friends, we do all that because we need to consult his word for wisdom and guidance. We need more of God's word penetrating our thick, stubborn skulls, not less. Thirdly, third word of advice. I want you to pay very close attention to this third one. I might say this could be the most important of all three. Always dangerous to say hyperbolic language like that, but here we go. We should consult godly believers for wise counsel who can ask us the why questions. 
We should consult godly believers for wise counsel who can ask us the why questions. You and I need men and women in our lives that know how we tick. We should open up our lives to others who have total freedom to ask good heart-level questions before we embark on a whole score of decisions with our life. Questions like this. Hey, brother, why are you wanting to do this? Hey, sister, why did you do what you did? Why are you wanting to date this person? Marry this person. Move to that city. Take that job. Leave that church. Start that business. Get involved in that ministry. Study for that degree. Be friends with that person. Raise your children the way you do. Use social media the way you do. Stay up late every night doing what you do. Looking at certain things on your phone like you do. Argue, complain, and get upset about what you do. Why? 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 You see, asking those why questions may be the very means God pumps the brakes and says, don't go there. Friends, if not, we could be heading down a path that will only lead to fruitlessness, regrets, and wasted time in our life. We need pumping the brakes conversations to check our motives first. Dave Harvey says this, maybe you've had the experience of cruising along in life or work or ministry thinking you're doing fine, and then someone drops this little bomb into your productivity parade. Why? As in, why did you do that, Dave? Or, why did you say that, Dave? Or, more to the point, what was motivating you, Dave? Give me a what question any day. I don't mind so much when people ask me what I do. Hey, I'm not perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. It's the why inquiries that get under my skin. In God's view, the result isn't the only thing that matters. Motives matter a lot. So let me ask you, Is there anyone in your life who's free to ask you the why questions? And what happens when someone questions your motives for the good things you're doing? If we're doing something good, we maintain the idea that our motives are somehow above question. But there may be no better place to hide selfish motivations than in service to others, even in the church. Service is certainly self-giving, but it can also be tailor-made for cloaking selfish ambition. In fact, I think a lot of divisions in churches happen because folks aren't willing to have their motives questioned. They'll argue fine points of theology, ecclesiology, missiology, and pneumatology, all kinds of ologies, but they never put on the table a very simple question. Why does this matter to me so much? We should consult godly believers for wise counsel who can ask us the why questions. But we should also seek the Lord for wisdom because our very future and families and churches depend upon it. Only what God builds will last. Only what God protects will be secure. Only what God provides will be enough. But Solomon zooms in on one last thing in this psalm that shows us that God's got to be in it. God's got to be behind it. God's got to be for it for it to happen. Which leads to our last section, only God can give life and build a family. Look at verses 3 to 5 with me. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Beloved, not only does God govern the world and all our endeavors in life, but he also governs conception. Look what Solomon says in verse 3. Behold, it's the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 1. 
when God made all of creation. Behold, the Lord saw what he had made, and he said it was very good. It means pay close attention. It means wake up if you're taking a nap. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit, the womb, a reward. That word heritage, your translation may even say possession, means a property that is inherited from another. If you have the NASB, it's translated as gift. Children are a gift from God. Can I get some response there? Don't take that for granted. We're living in a culture today that doesn't believe that. Children are a gift from God. Kids, look at Pastor Blake. I know it's long. This is your shot, okay? This is what I want to tell you this morning. We got the Trotter kids. We got Bella, Titus. You are a gift from God to your mom and dad. God is showing his love and kindness by giving you to your mom and dad. It goes for teenagers in here. Even if you're an adult child here with your grown parents, you're a gift to your mom and dad. Children are a gift from God to be received by parents with gratitude, not grumbling. If we as parents are tempted to view children as unwanted burdens, then maybe ease and comfort has become our God. Many difficulties in our parenting could be used of God to break us of making ease and comfort our God and not Him. Sometimes God may even give us difficult children, even adult children, to break us of our self-dependence, that we would experience a deeper love from our Heavenly Father than only He can give us. Parents, I'd encourage each one of us to tell our children not only that we love them, but that we're glad to be their mom and dad. Tell them that life would be sad without them. Tell them that you learn a lot about your Heavenly Father and His love for you as you try best to love them. Regardless of what you may be told, kids, I said this to a youth group kid one time, and he blew his mind. Let me be utterly clear. Children are not accidents. Children are not plan Bs. Children are not a distracting and unfortunate obstacle that stands in the way of our perceived fulfilling or more wonderful life without them. Children are not a stiff arm to God's plans for our lives. Children are God's gifts to reshape how we're living the life he gave us. If anything, children show us how selfish and sinful we are and our need for our Heavenly Father. And because of that, children are gifts from God to sanctify us and show us we're still kids who need a good dad. In fact, Solomon says the total opposite of what our culture today says about children. He says children are a reward, a payment, not a nuisance, not a brick wall to our freedom and happier life. Now, what does it mean that children are a reward? Well, I don't think it means that if you've been a good boy or good girl, God's going to give you kids. Remember the context here, it's Israel under the Old Covenant one of the ways that God blessed his people under the Old Covenant was giving them fruitful wombs, fruitful land, fruitful kingdoms. That was one of the ways he would bless his Old Covenant people of Israel. You could read Psalm 128 and see how it pairs with Psalm 127. But if we read under the New Covenant, which administration we're under today, and its promises, friends, biological children are not the blessing. 
of the Christian life. They're not even the only way God blesses his people in the Christian life. God blesses his people today through Jesus Christ, God's beloved son. Got to get that whole biblical theology there, y'all. What makes building families eternally worth it in the end is that we are welcomed into God's family through God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved by adoption. He chose you. He chose you. Not based off any merit, worth, good, beauty, or lovability about you. He chose you because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. He loved you so that you might savor and love him and his glory. That is the wonderful good news of being a Christian. That God makes us new creatures in Christ. He gives us the new birth by his spirit. To my non-Christian friends, we are born from, from the womb to the tomb, spiritually dead, and we hate God. Unless God raises us like dead corpse and gives us new life, we will never come to him. God, by his spirit, can make you alive even today if you recognize your sin and your need of a savior. Those anxious feelings, those emptiness, that purposelessness, that anxiety, that utter meaninglessness that chases all of us in this fallen world can begin to make more sense when you first recognize you've sinned against a good and holy God, and that he has shown his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, for you. Christ came through the miraculous birth of a virgin woman to give us the second birth and be alive in him. Jesus came as a man to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again for our justification before God. Christ came with the promise if we repent of our sins, he would free us in order to serve him and love him as one of God's own children. Friends, no matter what kind of family you and I grew up in, whether we were, it was a graciously wonderful family or a terribly dysfunctional family or just kind of somewhere in between, God's family the universal church ultimately triumphs over our biological and earthly families. The Boylston family is a family I deeply love. I love my wife and kids. I love my mom and dad. I love my brother Tyler. I loved my grandparents when they were alive. I love my cousins, my uncles, even those distant relatives that you kind of cringe when you see them at the family reunion. It's nice to still have them around. But the church of Jesus Christ is the family of God that can never end. It will never die. It will never erode like our earthly families will. That's why I want all my kids, that's why I want all my biological family to be adopted into God's family more than the Boylston family because that family lasts forever. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That sound like Psalm 127, verse 1? If you want to get in on the best building project, the most successful mission, the most sweet and loving family, the most satisfying endeavor to bear fruit that will last forever, then join Jesus' family and get involved in Jesus' mission making disciples of Jesus Christ and teaching everyone to obey what he has commissioned us. That, friends, is the wonderful life. That, friends, is the good life. 
whether we're single, married, empty nesters, divorced, or raising kids in a messy and noisy home. May Jesus Christ and his renown be the center of our homes and the boast of our life. Back to Psalm 127. Whether it's spiritual life or physical life, only the Lord can create life. Human life begins at conception in the womb of a mother and has human rights that should be protected, defended, and upheld. If children are created by God, then God has given them human rights. That means we should all hate abortion and fight against it the best we can using whatever influence, vote, or persuasion we have in our lives. As we should show love and truth, grace and compassion to those who've made poor decisions with their children if they come to faith and repentance. As the people of God, we, sh- we welcome all sinners, all sufferers, to the healing balm of Jesus Christ. Friends, if we're going to be consistent as God-fearing Christians who actually believe what the Bible says, of all people, we should speak loudly, clearly, respectfully, joyfully, honorably, and with gratitude for the gift of children. I'm thankful that our church does that. From the children's ministry on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, how families bring their children into this home, into our church family. We love having young kids here. Uh, the Lord is adding to our church right now. He's seeming to do more pack the pew with more kids. But we thank you for the kids being here. We pray for more. Uh, but we are pro-children here at CCBC. We should give gratitude for the children God's given us and gratitude for the children God has given others. But for what purpose did God bring children into the world? How should we view our children in light of this song? When verses 4 and 5, Solomon takes up the imagery of a father, like a warrior who has many arrows in his quiver. The arrows here are speaking of the children that God blesses him with. The word children can sometimes be translated as sons in the original language, which would mean that the arrows here in the hands of a warrior are young boys that grow up to be strong men who fear the Lord. Nonetheless, the idea of parents here, warrior mom, warrior dad, whatever kind of fills your cup up this morning, that's the point, sons and daughters being raised up. In these days, judicial matters and business exchanges would take place at the city gates. That's why the allusion of verse 5 speaks of enemies in the gates. It appears that when a potential threat or war could be on the horizon, negotiations would take place to have more men, more strong, able men to protect the gates would fortify the city. Thus, the picture here is speaking about the blessing of having children, raising children, preparing children, mobilizing children, and commissioning children into a scary world with an awesome God. That's why we as men and women, moms and dads, should be like warriors who are taking very good care of our kids to get them ready for the real world. When they grow up, they may come back around to protect us when we are old, decrepit, weak, and annoying. Parents, that means among the many good goals and desires we have for our children, we should desire to see them fear the Lord and walk with Christ. According to Malachi 2.15, Ephesians 6.4, the desire for raising godly children is a noble desire. Friends, I say all this, remember, parents cannot give children the new birth in Christ. Only God can save a child's soul. 
Parents in here, you need to hear me say this. There's a lot of anxiety in this room over your children. I know because you've confided in me. I see it on your faces on Sundays. I hear from you when, you, when we ask for prayer requests. The elders know what's heavy on your heart. We are called to be faithful. It's God's prerogative with the fruit that comes. We remove stumbling blocks like living in hypocrisy. We need to own our sin. Probably one of the best things we could do for our kids is tell our kids we're sinners, that we've messed up, that we failed, that we weren't always the mom and dad that we should have been, that we don't always cross our T's and dot our I's as Christians. They need to see humility and brokenness because that's what the Savior calls of us. We remove the stumbling blocks. We remain faithful, but it's God and God alone who produces the fruit. Dale Johnson says this, parenting is not a vending machine. Push the biblical button and poof, you get the product you want. That's not how this works. He has his elect. And as Spurgeon said, pray that God would elect more. God is faithful. Faithfulness is our responsibility. The fruit is God's. As we close and land the plane here, I want to speak to almost every demographic here on this wonderful psalm. To the singles of our church, and if you're not single, you can still write it down, cultivate having a high view of children and marriage. Cultivate having a high view of children and marriage. If you desire those good gifts, make your request known to the Lord. Pursue godliness right now so that you will be prepared if the Lord does grant you a spouse and children one day. Young men, take initiative to get to know families who are raising and have raised kids. Here's a word of wisdom to every young man. Learn what it looks like to raise a family before you start one. That's not true for all of us. Sometimes we have to continue to reverse engineer and detox and untangle. But my exhortation to young men, teenagers into their 20s, into their 30s, Learn what it looks like to raise a family before you start one. With counsel and guidance, godly men and women will be a gift to you for that wonderful gift God may give you later. Young ladies, even if you are young girls heading into your teenage years, it is perfectly fine for you to think about a career. Go to college, get a degree, make money, wonderful. But do not let the culture do not let your flesh tell you that motherhood is some kind of second place, backseat, well, okay job. No. Those who rock the cradle will impact those who impact the world. It is a high calling. It is a lofty calling. We should never downplay the wonderful calling on a woman that God makes a mother to raise her children. Second word of encouragement, parents who have adult children, love your adult children, but desire to disciple spiritual children in the local church. Learn or love your adult children, but desire to disciple spiritual children in the local church. Friends, making disciples is not for a radical few, but for every Christian. 
pour into people in our congregation, young men and young women, boys and girls who are coming up in our church. Use your motherly instincts. Use your fatherly instincts. Pour out your heart. Open up your home. Open up your wallet and be a spiritual father and spiritual mother to those coming up behind you. If your adult child is not walking with the Lord, oh, listen to me, church. Know that the Lord is walking with you. If your adult children are not walking with the Lord, know that the Lord is walking with you. Keep giving that burden to him. He is kind and faithful. Number three, last point as we close. To parents with young children in the home, time is precious. So wherever you are, be all there. Everyone who's raised children are doing this. Young parents are going, huh? Still trying to make it through last night's lack of sleep. Say it again. Time is precious. So wherever you are, be all there. Our children are arrows in our hands. One child, three children, six children, whatever. They are not a ball and chain. And they aren't mailboxes that stay stationary in your front yard and won't go anywhere. They may feel like that. Sometimes they come back. But ordinarily, say it to yourself now, one day our kids will be gone. They will grow up. They are not meant to stay at home forever. Any parent knows that parenting is not easy, that God can make up for all our failures in our parenting. We have our children in our hands for a brief while. We savor the years with them, and we trust God with the results. A poem I was given a year or two ago from a dear friend. I'll try to make it. Be a good way to remember the gift of children. My hands were busy through the day. I didn't have much time to play. The little games you asked me to, I didn't have much time for you. I'd wash your clothes, I'd sew and cook, but when you'd bring your picture book and ask me please to share your turn, I'd say a little later, son. I'd tuck you in all safe at night and hear your prayers, turn out the light and tiptoe softly to the door. I wish I'd stay a minute more. For life is short and years rush past. A little boy grows up so fast. No longer is he at your side. His precious secrets to confide. The picture books are put away. There are no children's games to play. No good night kiss, no prayers to hear. That all belongs to yesteryear. My hands once busy, now lie still. The days are long and hard to fill. I wish I might go back and do the little things you asked me to. Brothers and sisters, our time here on earth is short. It is but a mist. But we have work to do. We've got arrows in the quiver that are ready to be prepared and shot out for King Jesus. We have disciples, spiritual children, that are being prepared right now to be sent out for King Jesus. And God is sovereign over it all. 
He's sovereign over your young kids. He's sovereign over your adult kids. He's sovereign over barren wounds. He's sovereign over churches. He's sovereign over lonely days. He's sovereign over it all. And he's generous with all his good gifts. Friends, whatever we give ourselves to, whatever blessings we get to enjoy, remember God plans and governs our lives so rest and rejoice in whatever he gives to you in acceptance lie of peace we can trust jesus because he is building the church we can trust Jesus because he is our king watching over our city in our lives. We can trust Jesus as our shepherd because he can give rest for our souls. We can trust Jesus with our families because the Father's love is a greater love than any love our families could give us here. From beginning to end, our lives are in God's sovereign and generous hands and not our own. And that is a really good thing. Let's pray. Father, unless you build the house, unless you watch over the city, unless you provide us rest and peace, unless you cause our children to be born again, unless you open the womb, Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray here at CCBC, we would be a death grip dependent church full of death-grip-dependent singles and married couples and families, and that we would trust in your sovereignty and in your generosity and in your goodness by what you don't give us and what you do. We praise you for giving us Jesus Christ. You've already given us heaven's best. It's in his name we pray. Amen.